What would you do if your entire business got thrown on its head? That's what happened with Awake Chocolate. They had built a business that was largely based on on on-premise consumption and sales pre-COVID. Then March 2020 came around and flipped the business on its head with a lot of their on-premise locations being shut down, places like schools, universities, offices, et cetera. So they had to pivot quickly and build out a direct-to-consumer strategy along with a retail strategy that I thought was pretty ingenious. So in this episode of the show, we're talking to their founder, Adam Deramo. He is the co-founder and CEO at Awake Chocolate. We talk about how his business responded, how his team responded, and how they've built their company moving forward. I love this conversation. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, we put on the show here at Cave. We're a social media first agency based out of Los Angeles that can help you grow. So if you need help, head over to cavesocial.com. We'd love to help you out. All right. Sit back, relax, enjoy this episode. What's going on, my marketing people? Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, joining me from Awake Chocolate is one of their co-founders and their CEO, Adam Deramo. Adam, how you doing? Good, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to have you here, man, and talk through, you know, awake, where you're at, the challenges, all of that. But before we get into it, I want to set the table for the listeners. What brought you to starting Awake Chocolate? Uh, Walk me through that career journey, you know, to getting to where you're at now. Yeah, I studied business in uh, undergrad at a a fairly small school near Toronto, and uh, I know I knew two things for sure when I graduated. One was that I wanted to work with consumer products. I loved the idea of working with things that people used every day. And then the second thing was that at some point, I wanted to start a company of my own, build something from scratch. There was not a single version of my own career story that I told myself that didn't include starting a company. And through a series of fortunate coincidences, I guess. I found myself working with a couple like-minded guys who I became friends with. And rewind back to 2010, we were out for lunch one day and I just casually mentioned, I'm really starting to feel like I I just need to do this now. I'm not even 100% sure what it's going to be. I got what I think is a good idea, but I really feel now's the time. And no joke, in less than 10 seconds, they both said, I feel the exact same way. We agreed to do it together and we never turned back. And I think in order to take on the risk of trying to build something like this for yourself, you have to be naturally optimistic and have a sufficiently high risk tolerance. And we all checked those boxes and that allowed us to just keep going. I love that. Were your co-founders too, did they have complementary skill sets? Like, was it pretty obvious from the outset? Like, okay, you're going to be the operations, you're going to be the marketing, like you're going to be the product? Or was it more like, hey, we're all figure it out, people, let's figure it out and go? Because I kind of seen, I've seen two different founder teams work. So I'm interested what, what yours look like. Yeah, I think we were more the latter. So between the three of us, we we definitely had functional experience in finance and strategy. That was more my background and then sales and key account management. But all three of us had been involved in product launches, brand plans, you know, you name it. We had worked on it at least in a support capacity. So there was a lot of just like figure it out and innate problem solving skills that we all brought to the table. 
you know, and that ends up being pretty necessary because none of us had worked with chocolate. We didn't have the slightest idea how a chocolate factory worked, but we were all willing to call as many people as we needed to and ask as many questions as we had to until we understood it. And that's been, you know, that skill set has been more valuable to us probably than anything else since we started the company, which at this point was eight years ago. I love it. I love the uh, figure it out mentality. Like, all right, we're going to figure it out. We're going to call, we're going to learn, we're going to do this. And that's awesome. So over the eight years, you know, CPG, obviously a lot of consumer packaged goods, COVID flipped the business on the head for them. And for you all, it was no different. Walk me through that, you know, February, 2020, how the business is looking to end of March, 2020, like house is on fire. We need to make changes. You know, walk me through what happened there. Yeah. You know, we experienced an entire career's worth of disruption in uh, the span of about two weeks. We'd launched Awake first and foremost as a campus brand because we thought that college students are busy and that they would understand and appreciate the brand. Thankfully, that intuition turned out to be right. And uh, we were pretty successful on college and university campuses from day one. That success gave us access to some adjacent channels of trade like offices, uh, work campuses, hospitals. And over the course of a few years with a lot of hard work, we built a pretty successful route to market. I'd say we were able to service 80 to 90% of all on-premise locations across North America. So, you know, we had built a a decent-sized business that was growing reliably, and we thought that our focus on-premise consumption was absolutely a competitive advantage. Our products had best-in-class sales in those channels. We were able to create good economics for ourselves and predict how the business was going to grow. And then March 2020 rolls around, and within a week, 75% of our ship twos closed. So, uh, you know, at first, I think we were kind of in a state of shock. We had never entered, we did a lot of planning, right? That was our CPG background. We had never entertained the scenario even once where the government told everyone they had to stay home from school and work. So this was a possibility for which we weren't prepared at first. We thought it would be short-lived, so we just kind of had to put our heads down and ride it out. I think everyone remembers two weeks to bend the curve. That seems ridiculous now, but it was believable at the time. And then, uh, you know, call it six or eight weeks in, we realized nobody had a clue how long this was going to go on for and that there was a real possibility that most of our revenue wasn't going to be possible for the rest of the year just because no customers were open. So how could they possibly buy anything from us? And we did all the things that you would think a company would do. You go into self-preservation mode. What costs can we cancel? What things can we put off? So we did all that we could do on that front. And then, you know, now we're three or four months in, we had to step back and really take a hard look at the business. And we didn't think it was a fragile business model, but for sure we had to figure out how to make it more resilient. And a lot of that, a lot of the work that we've done since then in the last year has been about how do we cultivate resilient channels to make the business safer and give it more opportunities to grow? Yeah, that's real, man. And it's interesting. Like, no, you know, obviously nobody predicted this, but what we think is safe and then suddenly is a blind spot that the whole world had that, oh, this could happen. So talk to me now. Okay, you took the step back. You're going to build some other channels and really build some channels with moats around them. What were those channels? Like as a starting point, we looked at everything. Like 
what's allowed to remain open in in the environment of lockdowns. <laughs> and the two that really stood out to us, and it was all from the perspective of what's going to work best for our consumer. The two that made the most sense to us were e-commerce, direct to consumer, which you know we had ignored at our own peril for for too long and also convenience and gas because there's just our product is very impulse we always believed in trying to have distribution at the point of consumption so when that 2 or 3 p.m. lull kicks in or when you need that extra pep in your step the product is within arm's reach and man there are hundreds of thousands of convenience stores across the United States and Canada and we realized if we could get our product into more of them that would make our business safer but it would also be convenient for consumers especially the ones you know that were going on 6 7 8 months not able to get back to the place where they were buying our product before exactly and then using some of that brand familiarity when okay I'm not on campus or I'm not at my office anymore, but I'm work from home and well, heck, I'm going to go run down to 7-Eleven or you know, the corner store and see what's up just to get out of the house. And then I see the product that I've had before and I, I know and I love, or it's there and it's got a, enough novelty, you know, caffeinated chocolate where I'm like, oh, I'll try that versus just, you know, insert, <laughs> insert Kellogg's product. Right. So I love that the DTC is the, uh, you know, two seconds. I think everyone listening would have been like, of course, DTC, build out the web. Cool. Get some subscription stuff going. Awesome. But I love the other thought of, okay, what's going to stay open? What's going to stay open no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. You know, now I'm not going to say no matter what, because I would have said two years ago that, you know, there's no way, but for the most part, right? Like, okay, what's something that's going to stay open during this problem? So I love that idea of like, all right, now we got to, you know, hit the pavement, start getting in these stores, start getting in these chains, get in the gas stations convenience. Did that change the dynamics of the team or what, like, was it something of like when the team came in and, and more so the extended team, I'm sure leadership was like, okay, let's go, you know, let, let's do this. But were there times when like the extended team, you had to go talk to them and be like, all right, here's our pivot, you know, here's how much we have runway or here's, were any of those conversations like to the team to let them know, hey, we're making this pretty drastic pivot and it's going to take everybody there. Or if you can take me back to, you know, those meetings, I'd love to hear, because I'm sure there was a lot of people like, are we going away, right? Is this over? Like all of those questions would start to come from a, a staff, a staff member. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first step was just making sure that my two co-founders and I were properly reoriented to the path forward. I'd love to tell you where like geniuses who can figure things out quickly, but the reality is we had spent seven years building a business that did a couple of things really well. And it, it took us a, a bit of time to figure out what was the smartest path forward or what seems like the smartest path forward in the moment. And um, truth of the matter is the team ends up changing quite a bit in the 12 months from when we realize what the new direction is to, till now. And unfortunately, that meant we had to say goodbye to some teammates who there literally just wasn't an opportunity to keep them on from an economics perspective. And then we were having to search for some new teammates because it, particularly on the D2C side of things, there's a different way of trying to acquire new customers. There's a different way of trying to capture consumer attention. And there's a different way of even delivering the product. I mean, D2C is great. It's lockdown proof. But 
if you were going to develop a line of food products to sell D2C, you might not start with chocolate because it wants to melt when you deliver it in the summer. And that was a lesson we learned the hard way last summer. Things seemed like they were going well. We were growing our D2C sales pretty reliably. And then July kicked in and like every order that we shipped to Texas melted for like four or six Dang. weeks. Yeah. And like, you know, we weren't completely oblivious to the fact that that was a risk, but we thought we had solutions in place to mitigate that risk. They just weren't effective enough. So, you know, then we had to invest in customer service resources and other solutions that we didn't need before. And uh, we've been continuously adding to the team for the last, yeah, for the last 12 months, including a couple more uh, people recently. And one of the more valuable lessons that I've learned as a leader through all of this is, you know, it's a bit cliche. Everyone says the hardest thing to do is find good people. It turns out to be true. I mean, especially in a period of upheaval like this, it's, I think it's doubly hard to find people to join the team in this environment. Oh, yeah. It's wild, right? It's so true. One, the people really are going to be the backbone of the org and push it forward. It's something else you brought up there that I think a lot of companies didn't account for is that when you switch to a DTC model or emphasizing that more, now that you're the point of purchase at the website versus you know a target, you got to handle all the customer service too. Mm-hmm. And it's the the refunds, the complaints, the questions, the, hey, is this good? So ramping your CSRs up as well and being like, oh, dang, we need, like, there's going to be broken packages. Like, all of those things that are going to happen, you're like, oh, we had, you know, we had one person who handled the inquiries and also did something. And now it's like, oh, we need people to be manning the keys, so to speak. That's something that's definitely I've heard from a couple companies. They're like, we did not expect that. So, so. Oh, we're a part of that group for sure. I mean, we're lucky that I think we have a great team and the people who are here totally bought into the new vision and were quick to put their hand up and volunteer to help solve problems. But the stuff comes at you pretty quickly, right? And there was a period of time last summer where I probably spent half my work hours answering Zendesk complaints. Shout out to Zendesk, uh, the customer <laughs> service software <laughs> we use. But like, I was not prepared for the volume of work that would come with trying to sell more D2C. Like, I'm glad in retrospect we made that decision. I think we have a really bright path forward in that channel, but um, you have to learn really quickly. It was a bit like drinking out of a fire hose. Dang, you know, yeah, that's funny to hear. And very much the other side of business that people don't see, the CEO going in and answering Zendesk, you know, Zendesk customer tickets at all hours of the day, I'm sure. Adam, for those who want to... One, connect with you online, and then two, learn more about Awake Chocolate. Where should they go? Yeah, our social handles are at Awake Chocolate. I'd say Instagram's our biggest channel for sure. And awakechocolate.com, that's the best place to find us. For people who are Amazon fans, amazon.com slash Awake Chocolate. We have our own brand store there. Those are the three best places to find us. Awesome. So everybody, I'll put links to both the website and to Adam's LinkedIn on the show notes page so you can go make sure grab yourself some awake chocolate. Adam, once again, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. All right, everybody, that's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I'll catch you next time. Um, um.